Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to welcome you to a very special event with British artist Sir Peter Blake, who is recognised as one of the founding figures of British pop art and graduated from the Royal College of Art in 1956, where many of the key British pop artists, including RAs David Hockney and Alan Jones, also studied. Peter's work includes appropriating pop culture icons such as Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley, as well as graphic design with his album cover for the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967. In much of his work, he composes assemblages of found objects, an artistic style and process that is undoubtedly parallels Joseph Cornell's own work. Today, Peter continues to make work that spans media, including collage, sculpture, and printmaking. And he was recently included in the Barbican's Magnificent Obsessions, the Artist as Collector exhibition. Joining Peter in conversation tonight is the RA's Director of Artistic Programmes, Tim Marley, who will consider why Cornell's work has made such an impact on Peter's own approach to art and what motivated him to create a series of direct homages to the work by Joseph Cornell. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Peter Blake and Tim Marley. Peter, we're going to get to Cornell very quickly, um, and then we can go deep, and then we can go broad and wide. But I love this image. Uh, here you are in your studio with part of your collection, part of your work. I just wanted to know when the collecting obsession started with you. It was um, very specific. It came about probably, and I won't go into it too deeply, but I was evacuated during the Second World War, um, after the Second World War, went to Gravesend School of Art at the age of 13, so um, to junior art department. And outside the railway station in Gravesend was a kind of junkyard. And I visited it and bought three items. And one was a papier-mâché tray, a Victorian tray. One was a, an outsider art painting of the Queen Mary, and the other um, I, I had no books at all, because you know, I literally came back from Worcester where I was evacuated and straight to art school. So I had no library, I had no, not one book. So I bought a library, I bought a set of Shakespeare um, books bound in, in leather. So I bought myself a library, a piece of Victoriana and the painting, and it took off from there. So, so that would have been in 1945. Did the two activities, the collecting that you begun as you went to art school and the training that you underwent, you know, as graphic design and then, and then as an artist, did they feel like separate activities for a time and then they, it became obvious to you that they, they, could, they could meld or do they always feel like two sides of the same coin? They were very confused because I, um, I did the National Diploma, I did the Intermediate where you learned pretty much everything and that was the last year it had been used since it was a Victorian examination. It stopped that year in 1950. So I learnt woodwork and all kinds of things. Um, and then I wanted to take the painting course, but was advised to do the graphic design course. I did, because I'd never make a living as a painter. I mean, that was the, 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 the feeling. Um, so then I did a year of that as a graphic designer, 
somebody suggested I tried for the Royal College and Robin Darwin saw my portfolio and accepted me for the painting school. Then I had to do national service, so I arrived at the Royal College in, <clears throat> in 53 as a kind of um, a, a bastard graphic designer and a kind of never having been a painter at all. So that informed what, what later happened. And that's why, I mean, in a way, I approach both equally um, at, at the same level and take, take them equally seriously. And I think it's what has made, made me almost unique in, in art, which is a disadvantage and sometimes an advantage. I love that, a bastard graphic designer and I suppose a bloody good painter, that would be, that would be one thing. And, um, this notion of collecting, your studio space at the Royal College, was it filled with, I wouldn't say clutter, but was it filled with, was it filled with objects interestingly categorised, piled up around the place? Or were you working in a fairly pristine space in the early years? Well, I think my generation um, kind of invented the studio space, the, the individual studio space, because when I went to the college, the first year had to be spent doing life drawing or painting. And then there was one room apart from that, which was called the composition room, where you went, oh, there's a still life room and a composition room. In the still life room, there were the usual props of being, painting still lives, you know, like a trumpet and a VAT 69 bottle and a Chianti bottle and stuff, stuff like that. You're all, all in a cupboard. So you, you arranged your still life from the, these items. And then in the composition room, you, you went in um, to make your pictures. And I, I followed the kitchen, kitchen sink, sink school. John Bratby. And yeah, so John Bratby was doing a fourth year while I do, did my first year. And, and I just claimed a space and, and it became very like my studio when I put my diploma show on because I brought in a carpet and a little settee and a palm tree and it was very kind of cosy and nice. When, let's, let's move on then, when did you first encounter Cornell and maybe as part of that answer, um, who were your heroes um, at, 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 when you were at art school and as you were sort of understanding or when you first encountered Cornell? How did that come about? Well, I, I tried to remember and I can't, um, but I suspect it would have been, there was a, a, a critic called Lawrence Alloway, who was a great champion of my generation of artists. I mean, myself, um, Dick Smith as, as, a, as an actor, you know, as a, as a abstract painter, and Robin Denny. And he certainly fed us information. I mean, he certainly gave me catalogues for H.C. Westerman in, in the mid-50s. So I suspect Lawrence would have told me about him in the mid-50s. Did you, did you encounter Schwitters before you encountered Cornell? I can't remember. I think I probably did because, because Dick Smith actually told me about Schwitters. So I knew about the phenomena of collage. Um, I mean, he gave me a, a master class in collage and we sat and made some. And that, that would have been in 55. So around that time, I, I imagine a little after. I love the integrity of, you know, you don't invent. You, if you can't remember, you, you, you can't remember. But uh, your memory is incredibly clear on, on, on a lot of things. So what is the clearest memory that you now have about when Cornell started to make an impact on you? Um, again, I can't remember. But, <laughs> but, but there was, a, there was a, a, a good show at the Whitechapel, I imagine, in the 70s. So that would have been the first time I saw a group together. Um, 
in, in the um, early 70s, I think. So, but, of course, your relationship with Cornell became more and more direct. You owned work, so let's look yes, at well, that. Yes, what I did, um, I, when I knew we were doing this talk, I didn't, it, we usually, when we've done it before, it's usually pretty, pretty spontaneous. So I didn't quite know what we would be doing. It'll still be spontaneous, but <laughs> yeah. yeah we... so, so I put together just a tiny little group of images just to explain my kind of direct links with Cornell. So this is a Cornell box that I owned for about five years. And it, it, that came about because I, I had a friend called John Armbruster. And it's difficult to describe what he was. He wasn't quite a dealer. He, he was a procurer in some funny way. And we were having dinner one <laughs> night. Are, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and he said, what's your kind of, what would be your dream thing to have? And I said, a Cornell box. And a week later, he arrived with three Cornell boxes that he'd procured somehow. I mean, I've never quite known how. Um, so there was this one, and there were two other very sparse, simple hotel ones, very white, um, you, the hotel series. And I chose this one, and I had it for about five years, but it was a swap for a painting, and I didn't ever complete the painting. And I think the value of the Cornell went up and up and John demanded it back. So I lost it. Um, but the next, the next image... Well, we're going to come back to this one, but let's go yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. The next image is, is a Cornell that we, um, Chrissy and I, still own now. And that came from Waddington, um, probably in the 80s, much more recently. Um, and that's a, a paper collage by Cornell with, on the back, um, a signature and his brother Robert's signature as well. I did actually take a slide of the signature, but somehow it didn't get put in. That's wonderful. I didn't know about the... So we still have that one. Let's go back, though. We'll look at the two now. So this... Did this hang, hang in the studio? Was this in the house? It was, it was in the house when I lived in Somerset, and it was by the, the desk where I worked. So it then would have gone to the studio in Somerset. And it did start to disintegrate, which was a worry. You know, the bits of plaster on the back wall of it were, were falling off. So um, it, it, was, it was becoming, I, I wondered whether I should mend it and thought I probably shouldn't. Um, you, you, you alter it in some way. Yeah, although a Cornell amended by Peter Blake may have well, it greater have, resonance. <laughs> I mean, it would, yeah, well, it would have been a no, something. No, it? I, it's like a de Kooning drawing erased by Robert Rauschenberg, you know. <laughs> the, 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 um, so having something as powerful as this, uh, certainly as far as you're concerned, so close to you. Is this something you can only do um, when you've established your own creative vision uh, because otherwise it's too dominating? Or did you only have it because you'd only reached a point in life where you could actually afford to buy one? I'm just curious about how owning a collection of things and how strong and overpowering they can be, um, uh, it, it, how that is for you and how much it just becomes something that's inspiring. Well, I, I think with the collection, I think the... You know, the groundwork has been done by the time you acquire it, I think. So I think by the time you get it, you're okay with it. You, um, so I, we have work in the collection that it certainly inspires me, but I don't think it ever squashes me in any way. I don't think it, it, um, it puts me off in any way. It's only an inspiration. If, Which, um, if, if someone said to you, this work 
What did you most gain from it for the five years it was in your possession? Would that be a question you could answer? Well, partly possession. I mean, owning something like that was just incredible to have. I mean, I knew how valuable it was. Um, so just, just to own it was extraordinary. As with most things you collect, you know, it's the ownership, I think, you often, isn't it? It certainly is. And, of course, one of the things that we... Um, I don't think we trade off. I think it's genuine. But one of the, one of the calling cards an organisation like the Royal Academy has when we're trying to borrow work is that we're going to recontextualise it. We're going to examine it in beautiful conditions, but at the same time, we're going to bring it together next to other works, by, usually by the same artist, but in thematic exhibitions. And it will fundamentally, or subtly but fundamentally, uh, give an opportunity for reassessment. Um, when you have a work like this, day to day to day, in your studio, um, which, which becomes more powerful? The change, changes that this work seems to undergo as you look at it, or as you notice it every so often, or the impact that it might subtly have on your own work? Well, it had a big in impact. As you know, I mean, a lot, one of the sections of work I do is, is kind of appropriation. And I had, had an exhibition, um, well, there are two exhibitions which I have the slides of to, to show you. Um, one was called um, 10 by 5, and it was homage 10 by 5, and it was 10 artists that I admire, and I made five works in the spirit of those artists. So one was Cornell, um, Sonia Delaunay was another, um, the Matisse Snail, I did a series of works around. Um, so I, I've got those five that I can show as slides, but the, the other one was the earlier show called 1 to 10, where one was, um, one was actually the, the first of the um, museums of the colour white, and then there were two works of another kind. And then number six was six pieces um, appropriated from Cornell. Um, so we, perhaps we could show those. Let's do that, exactly. So, so th that's number two in the series, and that's taken from a particular... In, in so in the series one to ten, the Cornells were number six, so there are six of them, but within the six, that was number two. Um, that's another shot of it. Let's look at it. And, and that, that's it in the gallery. So this little picture is, is the tiny one on the left, and then the next one is, is what you could call the actual size one, and then they go up to the big one, which was about that high from the floor. So what was fascinating, each one in the top left-hand corner, and perhaps we could move to the next. So each one had that motif that Cornell used of a, of a son, which is the original one he got from a sardine tin, and he had a collection of them. And then in the next space was a golden walnut. So what was interesting was making a walnut half an inch big up to a walnut six inches big. Um, so, so that was what... what, what um, involved me in, in the making of them. So if we run through, so that's number two, same sun, same you know, walnut in the same place. That's number three, and they're getting bigger. Number four. So by now, something like the, on the left-hand side, third from the top, is a Shirley Temple um, mug. So that's about that big. So we're get, getting bigger as we go through. And then, then something like the walnut would have been about that big. And then the final one... Or that, uh, yeah, it's the final one, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, that is the fine. Yeah, um, th that that would have been a, a, about six six inches, and it was a an actual walnut that I had uh, made of papier mache, and it it, it had been a the um, chocolate box for some marron glacé chocolates that I had for years, and suddenly, you know, we, we um, I gilded it, and it had a purpose. And Kerry House carved one or two of them. You know, Kerry um, makes woodwork for me. So he carved a couple of them. The, um, if we just go back, because we see it more frontally. Yeah. Um, so it's wonderful that you start with very specific Cornell references, and then it becomes Blakey, I suppose. But, but the thing we're struck by is that you're working in series. Cornell works in series. They were, I wouldn't say they were ad, well, they were ad hoc in a way, but they, uh, but they could be large or small. This is a very systematic series devoted to Cornell. So in a way, it's a, what, a, you're deconstructing Cornell or you're, 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 and you're reassembling aspects well, of your admiration for him. Well, I'm basically appropriating, and, you know, as I say, the, a, a lot of the work I do is appropriation. Um, so so um, in, in, that, in that show, um, there was a set called Appropriating Jack Pearson. Well, I'd made pieces when I was young using lettering, but Jack uses a system where some of his earlier works, he, he got letters from scrapyards in Las Vegas and, and made a word which he, he hangs on a wall with different kinds of letter forms. So I, in the series of, of appropriation, one was called Appropriating Jack Pearson. I checked it with him and we, we met and had dinner and he, he was fine with it and said, no, that, that's fine because you influenced me, he said. So it was a, a return influence. So one was appropriating, one was um, ripping off Jack Pearson. <laughs> <laughs> one was in homage to Jack Pearson. Um, and and there, I think there were six, all with various types. One was called spooking Jack Pearson because I, I did one where where the, the word was, was all in white. And he said, that really spooks me. So, so I did one called Spooking Jack Pearson. So, so this is one of the branches of work I do, and, and there are other examples of it. But the Cornell, the, <coughs> the latest is, was, well, they were all homages. So you... well, the other thing is, you, um, because I wanted to have a Cornell, I made, I made it for myself. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's part of the appropriation. And... and you were trained as a graphic designer and then, as you said, a bastard graphic designer and then, and then an artist. Um, Cornell was involved in textile design and then was selling textile yeah. design. Do you, um, I see a slightly different sensibility. I'm curious about your, the way you perceive Cornell's sensibility. Do you see evidence of the textile design or is that just a kind of reductive overview because we know it? No, I think probably, um, I mean, that, I, I suspect that was his only involvement as a young man with art in italics. I mean, he, he, he wasn't trained, so he wasn't trained to draw or paint or, or even make the boxes. So, so some sensibility must have come from that. I think his father sold textiles and he did as well, didn't he? Yes. So, so I think his, his aesthetic would have come from that. I think, yes. It, it is interesting that he, he didn't, not only was he not trained, but he didn't paint or draw no. or sculpt. And of course you do pretty well all those things. Certainly draw and paint and print make and collect and assemble and install. Um, I'm curious about um, your perception of his creative uh, vision process and so on based on that because I've always felt with you that 
painting, drawing, installing, collecting, they all become part of your creative process. But for him, he, he, was, he distinguished in a sense because he, he, he never did or seemed compelled to do the other thing. Yes, we've talked about this before and, and I, I, I'll quickly say it again, but I always think of my work as a tree. Yeah. The, the trunk is that I'm basically a figurative painter, probably associated with the American magic realists if, if, if there is an association. And, and from the tree are branches, and these branches are explorations into other kinds of art. It can be wood engraving, it can be etching, it can be collage, it can be drawing, it can be oil painting, it can be many things. With Cornell, there wasn't any sign of that. He, he made boxes, that's what he did, or boxes or collages. He didn't do anything else, which in a way is so wonderful and one-sided. So, so, in a way, I admire that very much. Let's move on. So, uh, well, the next set of appropriations were from this other show called Homage 10 by 5, and number 5 was Cornell, and so I made this. That's number 1 of the 5. So I very much related to... Um, I think they're all birds, so I, I focused on the bird, uh, the bird Cornell. So the next 5 images are that series. I'm, lo I'm loving this postmodern layering of meaning and, uh, and visual. I'm looking, you and I are looking at a computer screen. Yeah. I'm looking at half a side of that. Yeah. You're looking at the real object, but most of you are looking at the thing on the screen. But you know the real object's there, so it That's has an aura. Afterwards, yeah, now the artist is holding this up. Marvellous. And afterwards, please feel free to come and actually look at it close up in the flesh. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. So these are all... Um, the same size, well, they're that size, yeah. So um, about six inches high. And, and they all um, use imagery that he used. I think they could never be mistaken for a Cornell, and that was, wasn't my intention. I don't want to fake Cornell. Um, but they're in the spirit of Cornell, and they're very much in homage to Cornell. When, that's a very interesting observation, because we'll, we'll come on to an artist who, or someone who became an artist occasionally and did knock out the odd Cornell. Let's, let's tease the audience with that. Let's hold on to that in a minute. But it's not that controversial. I'm not, I'm not dissing a well-known artist. Um, but I think that in some ways, appropriation is much more difficult than many people think it is. And in a way, entering into the style of someone is just the beginning. And the danger is you just make work that looks like... You copy. Yeah, you copy, you, exactly. You, or, you, or you end up making work that looks like you've been subsumed by the spirit of the person that you're copying. That's probably the next stage up. Um, do you ever find, or did you ever find, when you're working with someone like Cornell, that's a difficult thing to resist? Or are you pretty accomplished at that anyway, because you've been appropriating for a long, long time? Yeah, I'm pretty safe with it. As, as, as long as I accept to myself that appropriation is okay, and, and I kind of do by now, um, I've given myself the right to do it. But what you were, what you were hinting at... When I came to the private view of Cornell the other night, Tim came up and we were chatting, and you said, I've just been talking to Dick Feigen, and he's, he's just told me a story that um, Tony Curtis, the actor, was a great fan of Cornell, and the story is that Cornell once allowed Tony Curtis's wife to go down into his studio um, for two hours, and, and, and you told it to me via Dick Feigen as a kind of scandal, you know, what might have gone on. Well, it was the cellar, wasn't it? So it was In the cellar, yeah. 
So, so beyond that story, if we now show the first slide. Well, let me finish, because it's yeah. brilliant. Because, I mean, the story is, is as Peter said, but I love the idea that an actor like Tony Curtis in the 1960s or 70s, this kind of, you know, still matinee idol pinup, was worried that his wife was going down to a cellar with an artist <laughs> for two hours and he wasn't allowed down there. I think that's quite interesting. Anyway, um, so here we are. Well, I didn't say it to you that night because it was too much like, I don't know, showing off or something, but, but um, the, 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 the <laughs> well, fact... Well, basically, you, you, you know it better than I, yeah. The fact was that, that Tony Curtis was a friend of mine in, in the, in the um, 60s my first father-in-law was an art director in the movies and, uh, um, and directed Some Like It Hot. So through him I met Tony and he became quite a close friend. So Chrissy and I visited him in California um, and on the day we visited, one thing that happened was that his young son had left the house and they, they were um, you know, in, in a kind of upsetting scenario. Um, but he... he um, he was very nice to us and, uh, and um, looked after us. And, and in fact, I, I almost put the slide in, but he taught Chrissy to swim. In the conversation, it came up that we, neither of us could swim. So he said, I'll teach you. And, and they went into the pool, and he led her around the edge of the pool, saying, we're now swimming into Paris. And then, they, then they'd move on afoot. Now we're in Rome. And he, they went all around the edge of the pool with Tony teaching Chrissy to swim. So Tony's wife went into the basement with Cornell and your wife <laughs> went wife to a swimming pool with Tony Curtis. <laughs> okay, right, that, that's a parallel, right. <laughs> but, but then he, he showed us, um, and, and what you were referring to was the fact that Tony made these kind of mock Cornells. Well, he bought them, didn't he? Well, that, Dick Feigen told me that he, Tony Curtis, went, when he, after that trip, he oh, bought... Oh, he bought he at bought least six. He yeah, had at yeah. least six Cornells, uh, beautiful ones. And, and I suppose rather like me, in admiration, he started to make his own Cornells, but you, what you were telling me was that he then offered them to Dick Feigen to have a show. Did That's he? the bit I didn't know. <laughs> um, and, that, and, and, and I was pretty sure we had a photograph, and so I think that piece behind Tony's head is, is, a, is a Curtis Cornell. Um, <laughs> Which, which you call Curtis Cornell, we'd call a knockoff Cornell. <laughs> and there is Tony, I think hair still wet from the swimming pool with Chrissy with a dressing gown on, which is a fantastic photograph. It's a wonderful it? image. And the next image is um, what, what also happened that day is that this painting came back from exhibition and it's the Baltus painting of three sisters. And at that point, that's Tony on the left in the kimono. And, and me as a young-ish man on the right, looking very happy. Um, but, but at that point, Tony owned, uh, I think Beltos painted three versions of the Three Sisters, and Tony owned two of them, two paintings that size. And I was just saying to you, he also owned two of the Duchamp green box. I don't know why he had two, it was kind of covering himself, I suppose. <laughs> but, the, but the point I was making was that he was a, Highly informed, in, intelligent, um, wonderful man, you, um, which negated the little bit of the scandal you told me. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and the, um, the, his wife then was called Christine Kaufman, which I couldn't quite remember. Who yeah. took that photograph? I mean, that's like Cartier-Bresson's um, significant moment when the cat walks in front. Yeah, well, there's Christy, another one without photograph. the cat. 
Um, and, and then the cat walked across and Chrissy managed to get it. Did, did you talk to Tony Curtis about Cornell? Well, very much, yeah. And, and um, do you remember any of his insights? I mean, we, we well, the, I mean, the story of, of Christine going down into the basement and, and um, him being worried—he had told told us that. Um, uh, but he and he vis he must have been one of those regular visitors. You, I think Cornell allowed certain people. The the, the thing is, he never let any. Um, uh, Tony told me he never let any men go into into, into the um, cellar. It wouldn't show them his work. Did you ever have a chance to meet Cornell? I didn't. I, I, I could have. I mean, the ages were right, but I wasn't there. Um, but Derek Boscher certainly visited him, and, and I know that Rauschenberg did and Andy Warhol did. So I easily could have done. It might have been too poignant. I'm always glad I didn't. Yeah, I remember Bailey, David Bailey, saying to me that he, I mean, he met many artists, he photographed many artists. His ultimate artist, artist hero was Picasso. He, never, he could have photographed him, it didn't happen. He never regretted it, because that's his rule of thumb. But yeah. part of him kind of regrets it, but never meet your hero, something like that. Well, I did try to meet Picasso. I, I, when I left the Royal College, I had a scholarship for a year traveling around Europe, and um, we were in Antibes. And I knew which restaurant he went to for lunch. And um, I went to the restaurant, but he didn't come that day. So, <laughs> so I, I could have met Brancusi, too, um, because we visited um, a, an English artist called John Napper, who had one of those, it is a particular courtyard of, of wonderful, kind of almost derelict 19th century studios. And Brancusi had the next studio to John. And, and so he could have taken us around to meet him. These, these things are meant to be, I think. There, there are people you meet, there are people you never meet, and there are people you almost meet. And they're all important. You, um, you rather beautifully described your, your, uh, a perception of how you might be seen, you know, the tree, the branches, and so on. And of course, uh, when Amy introduced you, um, you know, your association with British pop art, of course, is, is, is there. And in a way, you know, you're, you're an artist who's been associated with groups, I mean, pop art, uh, the, the, the Royal Brotherhood and so on, but also you've been, you know, you're a singular artist too. Um, how do you try and locate Cornell? I mean, when you first encountered him, um, and even now, where does he seem to fit in? Or is he one of those phenomenal oddities who never quite fits in anywhere? I mean, we know there's all sorts of, you know, he was close to abstract expressionism, he, he was close to surrealism, he was interested in the white magic rather than the black magic of surrealism, as he put it, but where do you locate him? On various levels. I mean, certainly on one level, I associate him with the surrealists, although he disassociated himself from them. On another level, pretty much as, as an outsider artist, um, certainly untaught, and, and but very sophisticated, but uh, uh, pretty much uh, in, in the same spirit as um, um, Simon Rodia, who built Watts Towers, or you know, outsider artists who make something extraordinary without any training. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, I mean, amongst my great heroes. I mean, we, we have this slide of you visiting Tony Curtis in California with that in inimitable light. You've traveled extensively. Um, art as, or being a successful artist has, has afforded you that opportunity even more, I guess. But Cornell, as we know, never traveled. Um, and there are, I suppose, reasons, uh, specific reasons. I mean, the need to look after his brother in particular. But 
That is a curious phenomenon, even for, even for someone, because he could have perhaps travelled at the end of his life. I, I wonder how you read that, or whether, whether art for him becomes the inevitable space of imagination and he doesn't need to travel. I think he was just very introverted. Um, I mean, certainly sexually he was introverted. I mean, his last, not, I'm sure they weren't his very last words, but towards the end of his life, he said, I wish I hadn't been quite so reserved. So I think there was a shyness there and, and, and that he, he was introverted. And maybe he was frightened of traveling. I mean, I was looking at the catalogue this morning and, and, and he's quoted as saying, it was too difficult to get a passport. You know, he couldn't go through the process of getting a passport. But um, I mean, some people don't travel, but I suppose what's poignant is that he, in his mind he traveled and in, through his work he traveled. Well, I, 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 as I was getting ready this morning, um, I decided that I, I did a series of pictures, which you might have seen called Marcel Duchamp's World Tour, where, where um, I sent Marcel Duchamp off to thank him for the, the right to do what I do and the right to do what a lot, a lot of artists do. So I sent him off on a, a rock and roll tour bus with Marcel Duchamp on the side, um, just to, to have a good time, you know. So he visited, um, he played chess with Tracy. Um, he he, he um, sits in the back of the bus in one of them as Rose Vie looking down on Elvis meeting the Spice Girls. So I sent it, um, the, the point of the story is that I decided this morning that I might send Cornell on a posthumous trip. That's a to, wonderful idea. Because the whole, journey, the whole idea of sending Marcel Duchamp on a, on, on a, on a journey of, uh, in your imagination is, you could say it's Cornelian, but the idea that you now might make a series of work around that is, is wonderful. Well, I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost certain that I'll do it. Well, let's, 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 let's unpick that. I mean, this is, we've got a great opportunity now. We've got an artist with an idea. You, <laughs> have, you can reserve the right to say, I'm not telling you anything, but where, 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 where are the seeds? Where will you start to go with well, it? Well, in my mind, I, I went through a series of cities. You certainly Paris, Rome. The cities that I get the impression that he loved. And then, then I would um, research the people and the reasons he loved those cities. Um, I mean, the, the, one of the first images that came to mind was it was a picture of him, probably in Paris. Um, and, and when we talked, when I talked about his sexuality, he was always in love. I mean, he, he fell in love with waitresses and girls he saw on the met, on, on the um, underground in, in New York. So he was always in love, but it was never consummated. And he, and he did have friendships with women, and he had admirers who were women. So I think the first one might be, might be him in Paris with that kind of coterie of, of young women that I've painted about in, in a group admiring Cornell. So there'd be um, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, Snow White, a couple of princesses, you because know, he loved princesses. Um, and and Tuesday, Tuesday Weld. Um, you know, so, so a group of, of young women that he would have admired, admiring him. And then Rome? Rome, um, I, 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 did, I started the series, um, um, which, which was put to one side, but I cut out an awful lot of pictures of bears. And it was going to be called Don't Go Down to the Woods Today. And it was going to be an enormous teddy bear's picnic. So maybe a teddy bear's picnic in Rome. You know. So th th these are very embryonic thoughts in the shower this morning. So, so, so they may well change. You know. 
There's a water theme running through this, but that's yeah. wonderful. And, and do you have a sense of where the journey will end? It, it never. I mean, the, the Duchamp journey will never end. The, there's a picture in, in my studio, which I might not finish, um, where that's called, he meets Robert, um, Marcel Duchamp's world tour, and they're all called that, and then there's the title. And this one is, he meets Robin Hood and his merry men, and is particularly taken with Maid Marian. So Duchamp has his arm round Maid Marian, and the merry men are there, you know, kind of showing off. Um, that, this wonderful trailer. So it's open-ended. No. If, 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 if I start it, there's so many. The cities he loved first, I think. So, so I think he liked London, Paris, Rome, Vienna he, he loved. And, and I also would research particularly the, the ballet dancers that he, he admired. So maybe, maybe he could be the kind of magic ballet with all the ballet dancers he ever loved dancing for him. Wonderful. I, I've discovered this. There's that image of the, that structure. For, I haven't the, told Chrissy about this well, yet. Well, she doesn't know. She's <laughs> going this up. all happened today in my mind. And the Loire Valley, because that's where that structure is, that's in the, the Berenice story is from, but, uh, which I only found out the other day from Sarah Lee, and I'm going to the Loire Valley in about two weeks' oh, time. Oh, really? So yeah. I'll text you if I find yeah, it. Yeah, OK. Any, anything Cornell-related. Um, you mentioned Duchamp, I and mean, that was a wonderful flight of, of fantasy or fancy. And, of course, Cornell admired Duchamp, yeah, Duchamp they were seriously admired friends, him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, let's, let's stick with what we're thinking now, but I just put, I thought we'd just move away from the cat and Balthus and uh, Tony Curtis and look at, at some images of your own um, Th These collections. are in the studio, yeah. so that's part of the elephant collection, which has just been at the Barbican and is moving on to the Sainsbury Centre in Norwich, um, which was a wonderful show about artists' collections. So what? that's part of that's a picture called a museum for myself, um, where the, the spiral, um, it's second row up, second from the left, is a spiral that Duchamp signed for me when I, I met him with um, Richard Hamilton was installing his show at the Tate and got, got him, so it's signed for Peter from Marcel, Marcel Duchamp. So. And the tradition goes on. I, I'm curious about, let's, we'll stick with this for the moment, but um, about, I mean, we start with Duchamp, we start with the found object, we start, we start with the, the, you know, the philosophical position that uh, an object becomes something else in a different context or uh, as a result of an artist's choice or so on. And we know that's important for Cornell, but we also know that you know, it's, it's wandering the streets of, of New York, he sees something in an interesting shop, a few shops later he sees something, and then later on at night realises he could bring the two things together. Um, so there is a poetry possible in the collecting or accumulation, in the accumulating of objects. Do you think that your post-Duchampian method and Cornell's post-Duchampian method are fundamentally the same thing, just done with a different poetic sen and uh, visual sensibility? Or do you see yourself in the way that you assemble collage and the, that you make your constructions or you assemble aspects of your collection as being significantly different to No, Cornell? no, that, that, that part of what I do... Yeah is almost identical to Cornell's process, that I do buy books from bookshops and, 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 and you know, special books that I make collages with. Um, and, and, and it's very much a similar process and, and almost the same mindset. But you, when I'm making um, a, 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 an appropriation of a Cornell or in almost any of the collages I'm making are, are done in the same spirit. But the painting's not. I mean. 
as, as we've said, he didn't paint, he didn't draw. So all the other elements aren't, aren't, aren't identified with him. I've never asked you this, and I'm glad I got the chance to do so now. Cornell was a Christian scientist. Religion was very important to him. There is clearly a spiritual dimension to what he does. You know, that the spirit is the only true matter, as it were, in the world um, for him, for Christian scientists. Do you have any religious beliefs now? Um, only the ones that, that are almost kind of um, enforced. You, when, when, I was, when I was little, um, my family were Church of England and Labour, so you're Church of England and Labour. I mean, you don't question it. Um, when I was evacuated first, I, I was made to go to church three times a day to the morning service, the Sunday school, and the evening service, kind of together, it was my sister and I, kind of to get us out of the house. And then when we came back, uh, our neighbor was a, um, a Methodist as preacher, so we were made to go to his Sunday school. So I think that, I have a belief that there's something there, but I don't, kind of don't believe there's a heaven anymore. I hope there is. Um, but I don't believe there is. Do you see, I mean, it's a very nebulous idea, really, uh, how art can be, uh, 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 um, contain a kind of spiritual dimension, but many, many of us sense it. Um, do you see a, a, a specifically spiritual dimension to Cornell's art, or is it no different to the spiritual dimension that is there potentially in your art or Jackson Pollock's art or Damien Hirst's art? No, there's more in, in Cornell. I think there is a spirituality about it. And there's a magic about them. I, I could never have in, in my um, appropriations, they, they never have the qualities that Cornell has. And I'm not, I, I know I couldn't do that. I mean, you, I think, I hope you would know it was my work rather than his. And he has a magic that nobody else achieved. Can you articulate um, what that magic is? Or is it, un, is it un, unquantifiable? I mean, I suppose that's what magic is, isn't it? You can't explain exactly what it is, but can, well, can you try? Well, he, he, he um, what we talked about, the sexuality, I think, is an enormous part of it. The fact that he lived with his mother, who still had a, a strong um, power over him, and his, his invalided brother, who he looked after, and um, um, he, he had trained, the brother Robert liked trains very much, so um, um, Cornell would play trains with him and give him time in that sense. Um, he was, all, I think he was probably an oddball anyway, whatever that means. I think he was, he was eccentric and probably slightly mad um, and, and, um, and a unique figure. So that, those characteristics somehow manifest, manifest themselves in a, a slightly different, skew, a, we might say skewed, but, but a different kind of vision. But, I mean, there's a real affection, for example, to his brother, who, you know, you could construe his brother as a burden, but he, he's obviously incredibly affectionate towards his brother and he's devastated when he dies. But are, are you saying that there is a kind of an element of yearning in Cornell as a consequence of the life that he actually finds himself in? And that art, art is a manifestation of that yearning or a way of ex exploring, expressing, and perhaps purging it sometimes? Well, certainly with the travel, I'm sure that's an element. The, there was a review on Sunday, um, Voldemar, um, re reviewed the show, and he ended it in what I thought was a stupid way. He said, if you go, if you go to a Cornell show, you think in terms of an orchestra, and all you get is the triangle, and he wants more than that. Well, you don't go to Cornell 
for more than that. I mean, that's what he does. If you want more than that, you go to Joseph Boyce or something. And I, I always say about Voldemar, he always slightly misses the point anyway. So, um, so he's missed the point yet again, you know. Um, I couldn't possibly comment, but let's throw it out. <laughs> <the floor>. <laughs> um, so, but but <clears throat> I mean, th that's what he does. He, he, he does nostalgia and beauty and, and repression and all those things. That's but he, what he is. But he's more than one note, isn't he? It, it, yeah, I mean, within all those things, he, 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 but he almost is only one note. I mean, it is about travel and it is about, it's on the same level. Whatever that, whatever level of beauty or, or, or um, it is kind of one note, but it's a wonderful note. You know, I mean, it's a big one note, you know. A pure one note. Uh, right, let's have questions. First of all, I'm one of the lucky people who has met Peter Blake previously. It was brief, it was at the V&A, and I'm one of those people who has met him as opposed to didn't or might have. <laughs> Um, I would actually like to um, bring into the debate, if it is a debate, something actually that I heard this morning on the radio, which I would recommend people listen to, fascinating, somebody I knew nothing about, a poet on Desert Island Discs called Imtiaz Darker. Some of the things that she said were very powerful. She's a poet, as I say, but the thing is, it also resonated for me in relation to something I brought to the debate again when I was here for John Stesiger um, last week. Listen, you're doing a brilliant job puffing no, up radio for John Stesiger. I will Stesiger, be very brief. Get, get to the point, get to the point. Yes, I know, Chairman, thank you. Um, I'm just giving a little preamble, and then I will jump in now. What I always wanted to say was that she was saying that when she actually sits down with a piece of paper, sometimes she doodles and it comes a drawing, or it became a line in a poem, and it's almost like she's at a crossroads. And I find this fascinating, this idea that, you know, you have a different format. It could be a poem or it could be a drawing or a painting. And John Stesiger, when I actually was also fortunate to get a seat, I was talking to him about this idea that Joseph Cornell actually almost has an alternative to words, i.e. his collection boxes are a form of vocabulary which only he maybe is able to originate, and then other people are inspired by, including Peter Blake. So right, you need to make a question. Though, this quickly. is basically what I'm asking: is whether Peter Blake, Peter, sorry, I don't want to be too formal, whether you would actually see that as something that you could see also uh, for Joseph Cornell, that that is actually what he's doing is actually a form of expression, but it is his. Well, he wasn't trained, but basically, he's doing things in three dimension as an alternative to painting and drawing. And I would also just end by saying, I don't see him as somebody who is isolated and yearning for freedom. I see him and his boxes as companions. For me, they are like lost souls. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think he was unhappy, um, if, if that's the impression I get. I think you once had accepted that you, his mother was probably nagging him a bit. He's got to look after his brother. I think he had within himself rather a nice life. He, for instance, he had lots of sweets. He had sweets all the time. And I kind of half admire that. Um, he, he loved cakes and puddings and, and ate them. Whereas I try not to, because I know I would be very fat if I did. 
So, so I think he, he, he was contented, if, if that's the answer to your question. And I think also the term visual poetry can be a cop-out, can be nebulous, but, but I think there, to connect what you've just said, and, and, um, there is a form of visual poetry in what he does, isn't there? There is, yeah, and, and it, talking of poetry, I mean, a lot of the things I do on a different level are related to literature. I mean, I, I, I spent 28 years illustrating under Milk Wood um, because I, I liked it so much that you know, I wanted to give it a, a visual sense and I, 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 I'm also illustrating the, um, the Molly Bloom soliloquy from the end of Ulysses mm -hmm. and because it's an, an ambition I've just established, I haven't started it quite yet but I've established the pieces of paper to illustrate the great Gatsby because that's something, so there is a link with poetry and literature, I don't know whether that um, answers your question. But the, the, I'll just say a quick anecdote. Yes. To, because I've just remembered, when, when the Whitechapel show was on, um, I, I was living by myself in Chiswick, and they were showing the films one night, and I felt very unwell and very strange, and I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to go and see the films, but I didn't feel well enough to go. And I, don't, I wasn't drunk, I wasn't stoned, I wasn't, um, I don't think I was ill, but it was very out of body. I decided to go. I got on the underground at Turnham Green, which goes straight through to Aldgate East, went into the Whitechapel, saw the films, got back on the underground, didn't talk to anybody, um, went straight back, and was back in the room. And I think, it doesn't seem possible, within an hour, this all happened. And I, I, I wasn't sure that I'd gone, um, it, was, you, it was some kind of minor breakdown, I imagine. But I just felt um, ill and out of body. But I, I saw the films in that state, which was a very Corneli, Cornelian thing to do. You know? So I saw Rose Hobart, and I saw those extraordinary films in a state of, of um, highness, but not being high. That sounds like a very elaborate legal defence, but I think we buy it, actually. It's rather beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. That, I did. A lovely, this gentleman here, yeah. Was he not very interested in the sky at night and stars? He used to sit and watch it a lot. I've got two books on him, one a biography, and one about his diary of looking at the sky at night a lot, which did influence him, I understand. Yeah, I think one of his interests was astronomy, certainly. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. yes. And, and, and certainly the visuals of, of charts of the sky at night, yes. which he often uses. He did, and didn't I'm he? sure he would have known where every star... Because whatever <laughs> yes. he was interested in, he learned about and knew about. So I'm sure he was a great expert on, on the sky. Yes, I think yeah, he was. I'm sure yeah, he was. Big influence on what he did, I think. And used the imagery. Yes. Yeah. Otherworldly, yes. literal as well as yes, metaphorically. Yes, sure. Yeah. Sure. Gentlemen there. Peter, you have a... An amazing collection of uh, collectible items. At the recent Barbican exhibition, there was an amazing similarity between artists' collections. Yourself, you yourself have unique items such as little teacher's shoes, uh, injuries, rhythm stick. Are there any items that you saw other artists in other artists' collections during the exhibition that, given the opportunity, you might want to move over to your own? <laughs> the envy question. Oh, well, I'd love it. everything in the exhibition. I'd love to have. But I think he, he didn't collect in quite the same way. I think he collected to make the pieces. So, so you know, like, like, a, like marbles, he would have just, he had in a box marked marbles up on the shelf 
and looked at them when he needed some marbles, whereas I would exhibit them as marbles, probably. So that's probably the difference. I think they were his, his, um, his kind of material. I don't know that he collected anything. He had a couple of little concrete rabbits in the garden. I know that he, he probably collected. No, that's a very interesting distinction. But no. I think he wasn't a collector. So, he, so we use the word collector, but what we mean is he acquired many objects, but all the objects that were acquired were there for his art. Yeah. Whereas you, you collect many things. Sometimes they're, they're involved so, in your art. Sometimes, sometimes they're, they're, they're collections. I think it's a different thing. Yeah, so what, what my meaning was the, at the Barbican exhibition with the yeah. other artists... Yeah, uh, the, the question was, you asked me if there were other, thi were there other things in other artists' that collections, collections that you would like to acquire. Yeah, the, the, I mean, what springs to mind, a beautiful little um, Jasper John um, numerals cast in silver as a piece of jewellery, about that big, is at the back of my mind, and I covered it enormously. I, I, I'll never get it, you know, I mean, uh, I think it was unique, and he probably still owns it. Yes, but I certainly covered things. Question at the back. Do you think there's any truth to the idea that maybe the reason he didn't travel was because the reality of these places wouldn't live up to the sort of perfection of his fantasies, his fantasy journeys to these places? It might have been, but I, I, I still think he, he, as I say, he was so introverted. I think he was probably frightened of travel. And maybe that was one of the elements. And maybe he did have a kind of magical idea of what Paris was like. But uh, I re was reading in the catalogue that he, he once had a conversation with Duchamp about Paris. And they had a long conversation about various streets and places. And at the end of it, Cornell told Duchamp he'd never been to Paris. But, it, but he knew it. He knew all the streets and the shops. And, and whereas Duchamp was talking about favourite shops and favourite things he'd done, Cornell just knew about them. I think he was probably frightened to travel. I guess one thing's for certain, Cornell, um, he, he certainly won't find it disappointing when he goes on Peter Blake's magical mystery tour. No, he, um, he's going to have a great time. Which we say was born in the showers this morning, <laughs> but the seeds of those ideas have been sown tonight at the Royal Academy. Uh, just to reiterate that the Royal Academy is a place where art is made. We have schools and we have it in, in the debate. And really, any, anything we've said is about the exhibition. So if you haven't seen it, come and see the exhibition. Um, there may never be another chance. I mean, I know how difficult it is now to put on exhibitions. They're not going to come back, I think. They're very, they? very delicate yeah. objects, actually. Yeah. You finished my plug beautifully, Peter. Oh, um, right. So I will then return to you and say, um, you're a great talker, but it's very generous of you to come and talk about another artist. Thank you very much indeed, Peter. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.